The text for our sermon this morning is the account of Jesus' transfiguration, as it's called. It comes from Luke chapter 9, verse 22 through 36. Jesus said to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for sending us your word to enlighten us, to encourage us, to, to give us hope. Bless us this morning as we dig into the account of Christ's transfiguration. Send your Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith and motivate and equip us for our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past eight weeks, we have been asking the question, what if God was one of us? And each Sunday, we've sort of clarified that for Christians, this is not a hypothetical question. Like, what would God be like if he was one of us? Because we know that this is history, that God did become one of us when he walked the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And for the past eight weeks, we've talked through all different events from Jesus' life, starting, you know, going from his birth and then now well into his ministry. And we've now looked at enough things from Jesus' life that I think we can pause and sort of ask the question, what do you think so far? And what do you think of Jesus' life so far? Is Jesus really everything that you would expect from God walking the earth in a human body? Might we be so bold as to say, sort of? <laughs> sort of, he's what we'd expect? Because, you know, on the one hand, there were absolutely some spectacular godlike things about Jesus' life. Like angels announced his birth. 
And God the Father spoke from heaven at his baptism. And he performed all kinds of miracles and wonders and signs. And he preached with an authority that nobody has ever preached with before and nobody will ever quite preach with again. So some of the things in his life were pretty godlike, but there were other things in Jesus' life that looked very, very ordinary. There's nothing particularly special about his physical appearance. There was nothing particularly special about his childhood. There's nothing particularly special about the men that he chose to be his disciples. So Jesus' whole life is characterized by this tension that here he says he's the son of God and sometimes he looks like the son of God and, and then yet over here he looks so much like an ordinary human being. Jesus' whole life is this tension between those two. And in our text for today, which we just read, the transfiguration account, that tension reaches its highest point so far. As Jesus finally you know, breaks the shell open and reveals to Peter, James, and John a little bit of his glory on this very special mountain on this very special day. So the time is roughly two years into Jesus' ministry, and it's getting a little closer to the end of his life. It's probably a year before he's crucified. And the place is a mountain near Jerusalem. And then as far as the events, you know, we just read those things from Luke chapter 9. But in essence, Jesus takes his closest disciples up a mountain with him to pray. And Jesus did this all the time where he would go pray and maybe he'd spend all night long praying. His disciples sometimes would fall asleep and wake up and he's still praying. Maybe you remember Jesus doing this in the Garden of Gethsemane a little bit later. Um, so he's up there praying in the night and they're sleeping and all of a sudden they notice as they're waking up that this bright light is now shining off of Jesus. And he's been joined by two men who we're told are the Old Testament prophets Moses and Elijah who've been in heaven for hundreds of years and yet Jesus has you know, called a summit with them and the three of them are talking on the mountain and talking with excitement about Jesus' mission to take away the sins of the world. Uh, so it's quite the thing to wake up to. They're snoozing on the mountain, they open their eyes. What in the world is happening? And it seems like Moses and Elijah are you know, bidding Jesus farewell and taking off before Peter, James, and John get with the program. And then Peter says, well, wait, 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 just a minute. Can we not set up a couple shelters and, and just all stay here? And it says he didn't really know what he's saying. Apparently it's a little bit disorienting for a sinful human being to come into contact with God's real glory, even if it's just a little bit of it. But then a cloud rolls in and covers the mountain, and the voice of God the Father booms out of that cloud, identifying his son just like he did at the day of Jesus' baptism. And so they duck and they cover their heads, and, and by the time that cloud dissipates and it quiets down, they realize it's just them and Jesus again. So obviously this is a pretty memorable day. <laughs> if you're Peter, James, and John, this is not a day that you'd forget very soon. And we heard in our second reading, Peter is writing encouragement to Christians, and he's thinking back to this day and saying Jesus is who he says he was because we saw his glory on that holy mountain. Peter says, I was there. And John says the same thing when he starts off his gospel, that you know, the word became flesh and we have seen his glory. We were there. Uh, obviously a super powerful event for those disciples that saw it. But what is the point for us? I mean, what are we supposed to make of this event that we didn't get to see on a mountain that we have never been to, that was viewed by men that we've never met? 
What is the transfiguration about for us? Well, in a way, I think we've been building up to this already, like the transfiguration is a microcosm of Jesus' entire life, where on the outside, he kind of looks totally normal, and yet simmering beneath the surface is all the glory of God just waiting to burst out. And yet for the most part in Jesus' life, and just like he did here, he covered it back up, like for the most part in Jesus' life, he keeps his glory under wraps. Because now is not the time for glory. Now is the time for suffering. Now is the time for bearing the cross. Because those are the ways through which the promised Savior is actually going to save the world. He's not going to do it through his glory. He's going to do it through his suffering. So to that point now, I think to properly understand the transfiguration, it's important to keep in mind a conversation Jesus had with his disciples about a week prior. And Luke knows this is important because it's the last thing he says right before it. Eight days before, this is what they talked about. And now one week later, this is what happened. It's all linked together. So here was that conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And in that conversation, he said two things that were very surprising. First, Jesus had told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And this is surprising to the disciples. It's not surprising to us because we know Jesus is going to die on the cross, but Jesus' disciples are getting ready for him to set up his kingdom. They don't know what this is going to look like, and now he says that he's going to suffer and be handed over to their Jewish leaders and killed. He's not going to set up his kingdom through glory, but through suffering. And then in that same conversation, Jesus gives another challenging statement about his disciples. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So in other words, as Jesus' followers are going to spread the good news of his salvation across the earth, as they do that, they should not expect a life of glory either, but they can also expect a life of suffering. So why does it have to be this way? It's probably a decent question, right? Why? I mean, God can do anything. So why can God not use his power to set it up so that when a person follows Jesus, it's going to make their earthly life better instead of worse. Why can God not do that? Well, God could do that, but he doesn't. It seems the reason is that this earthly life and bettering your earthly life is not the goal. This life is not your goal. It is only a stepping stone to the better heavenly life that is to come. I think all this would be so much clearer if we could only see things as God sees them. Like, if we could only look at things like God for five minutes and just think this through, what would it be like if we could remember, like it was yesterday, the creation of a perfect, sin-free universe? Something that God looked at and said, this is, this is very good. If only we could remember, like it was yesterday, what it was like when human beings used to walk and talk with God. And they could see his glory, all of his glory, face to face, and it wasn't even intimidating or scary. A time when humans and God walked around as best friends. If we could only remember, like it was yesterday, a time in our planet's history when every human being in the world 
treated each other with perfect love and perfect respect. Just like it was yesterday, the Garden of Eden. If only for just five minutes we could see things the way that God sees them, and then we could look back at our world the way it is, we would immediately recognize that tweaking this broken world, trying to fix it up and polish it up, is never going to work. Like the human beings who live here, this world is dying. Like the human beings who live here, this world is a shell of its former self and a shell of what it was supposed to be. And if we are ever going to truly enjoy the type of life that God has always intended for people to live, an eternal life in perfect harmony with God, best friends with God, and also in perfect love and respect and harmony for one another, if we're ever going to have the type of life that we know deep down we need and that God has always wanted for us to have, it's not going to be in this broken world. It can only happen in a new world, a better world, a perfect world, where my, mankind has been fully restored to the image of God and where sin and death and suffering are no more. Now, God has seen that kind of world, and God can still see it like it was yesterday. We can't. All we know is this world, and so this makes us reluctant to leave this world behind. And it's kind of like taking your kid to bed when he doesn't want to go to bed even though it's past his bedtime. Parents, have you ever done this where you're bodily carrying your kid to bed, and then if you get a little too close to the doorframe, what happens? hooks the door frame with his hand, death grip, and pry his fingers off. And then you're carrying him to bed, you get past the stairs, you get a little too close to the staircase, and what happens? Just grip on the railing, and you got to peel off his fingers one by one. Um, and so this is kind of what it's like with God's children living in this world. Like any time that this life gets to be even a little bit enjoyable and fun, we develop just a death grip on earthly life, and we just absolutely refuse to let it go. And so, at times, God must use suffering to change our perspective and to help us let go. Here is how uh, C.S. Lewis described this concept. He said, a very famous quote, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And through pain and suffering and, in Jesus' words, bearing the cross here on this earth, God forces us to relax our death grip on the things of this world and instead to grip tightly onto him, the one who is carrying us and the only one who can bring us to the next world, the perfect world of heaven. God uses suffering to unclasp our fingers from the world and clasp them onto him instead. And I don't think it's hard at all to see God doing this right as we speak. Think about it. Um, for years, I think most Americans would probably say, we have taken our health and safety for granted. Right? Like, we have one of the best healthcare systems in the world. We have one of the strongest economies in the world. Have you ever caught yourself thinking, I've thought this way, like, man, I'm just so blessed that I live in a modern time when Society is not dictated by the latest plague. You know, isn't it wonderful to live in the modern world where we just kind of don't have to worry about these mass health problems like those ancient years? And then we had this pandemic. 
and it lasted for two years and it totally affected our society. And I think this has stripped away a little bit of our confidence in our automatic health and safety in the modern age. Like maybe health and safety is not guaranteed all the time after all, just because it's 2022. Or I think in recent years, Americans have probably taken our political stability for granted. And this is getting into sensitive topics, but I think we all recognize this is very true. How have we thought of this? We're like, we might have our differences, but that's part of democracy. At the end of the day, as Americans, we're always gonna come together. At the end of the day, as Americans, we will always figure it out. But now this deepening political divide in our country has got people realizing maybe political stability in our country is not just 100% guaranteed forever, just because it's 2022. Or finally, I think lots of us today in the modern age have probably taken for granted international peace. I know I've thought this way. Uh, this is the lens of, of our modern age where we're saying it's been 80 years since you know, World War II and it's been 30 years since we even had the Cold War. And what a blessing it is to live in the modern age. And there's so many times in history when there's been all these wars, but isn't it a blessing to live in a time when all the leaders of developed nations in the world can finally behave like responsible adults? And then Putin invades Ukraine this week. And everyone's starting to ask questions and say maybe international peace isn't guaranteed all the time after all just because it's 2022. So none of this is really fun to go through. It's not like God enjoys any of this. God doesn't enjoy watching these big global problems play out any more than God enjoys watching you suffer through personal problems in your own life. But God knows that it's necessary, that this side of heaven suffering is always going to be necessary because as much as it hurts us and it challenges us and scares us, Suffering also gives us perspective. And it helps us to see this broken, unsatisfying world for what it actually is. And it peels our fingers off of our death grip on this world as though this world is somehow going to fulfill all of our needs and desires. It peels our fingers off of that grip and instead we wrap our arms around God, the only one who can carry us to the world where things will actually be the way that they should be. So now what, right? You have world sufferings we're talking about. You have your own personal sufferings and problems in your life. God has driven home to you just how broken this world is and he's peeled your fingers off of it. So awesome. Now you're just holding on to God who's the one person that you can't see and now what are you supposed to do in your life? Well, as God speaks to us in his word, uh, he shows us a actual lasting solution for sin and pain and suffering and death that we would never find in this broken world. And that actual solution comes so unexpectedly through the suffering and death of God's only son. So we said this kind of at the beginning that there's this ongoing tension in Jesus' life, the tension between who he says he is and who he appears to be. And that tension reached its highest point on the mountain of transfiguration, where the disciples see a little bit of his full glory, not all of it, and then he covers it back up again. They could see that glory simmering beneath the surface and then it was gone. That was the highest point of the tension so far. But the tension in Jesus' life between who he was and who he appeared to be reached its very highest pinnacle on a different mountain, still near Jerusalem, 
this one, the mountain called Calvary. On that mountain called Calvary, what could you see on the outside? You could see a man who had lost everything. You could see a man who had been ditched by all of his followers. He'd been captured by his enemies. He had been forsaken, as he's crying out, even by God himself. A man who's alone. And then what's happening on that cross? Well, you could see physical weakness, agonizing pain, his torn and lacerated body taking its last miserable breath. If defeat was a picture, it would be that famous statue of Mary holding Jesus' dead body. They took him off the cross and his disciples are crying and Mary's holding him and it's over. He's dead. He's lost. It's the definition of a lost cause. The movement ends. This is what we see. But on that mountain, what was happening actually? Behind the scenes, on that mountain, God was crushing the head of that ancient serpent who had pulled the human race into sin so many years ago. Because what is Satan's power? It's his power to accuse us. This is what the word Satan means, is accuser. And by taking our penalty for us and giving us his life, Jesus removed the devil's ability to accuse you of your sin accurately ever again. What else is happening behind the scenes? My sins and your sins and all the things we've ever done wrong, all the things we're deeply ashamed of, are being put on Jesus and burned away and removed. And in exchange, his entirely perfect, heaven-deserving life is being given to us as a free gift. What else is happening behind the scenes? God himself is swallowing up his own punishment of hell. And God is breaking wide open the gates of heaven to everybody who believes in the promised Savior. What's happening is the perfect execution down to the exact day that they planned it, the Passover day, of this 4,000-year-long plan between God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to redeem us from our sins and reconcile all things back to himself. It was the very definition of glorious victory. And then we saw that a few years, a few days later when Jesus rose from the dead. But it's here. The glory is here. The victory is here. God's kingdom is here, but it's just hidden behind suffering. And in this world, as it is for Jesus, so it is for us. For example, behind the pain of admitting our sins and confessing them to God, comes the sweet relief of God's forgiveness. Behind the struggles, the endless personal struggles that we face in our lives, there lies the hand of a God who works in all things for the good of those who love him. Behind the terrifying unpredictability of our sin-broken world, and whether we're talking about national politics, international politics, wars and pandemics and anything else, behind it all, there lies an incredible opportunity for God's children to share with other people the hope that they have in an eternal, perfect world of heaven. And behind even the tears and sadness of a Christian family who are standing at the grave of their loved one and they're saying goodbye for now. Behind that situation lies another group of Christians in heaven 
who are rejoicing and saying, welcome home, welcoming that soul to Jesus' side in an eternity of glory. So the glory is here. The victory is here. God's kingdom is here. For now, it's just hidden behind suffering. Because this side of heaven, that's how it has to be. And so in the end, Jesus doesn't grant Peter's request, does he? Peter's request is, you know, your glory is beautiful. Can we not just set up shop on top of this mountain, set aside our earthly troubles and cares, and bask in God's glory forever? And Jesus says, no, well, not yet. Eventually you're going to get to do that in heaven. But the only way to get there is through the cross. So now Jesus goes down the mountain, headed for crucifixion and death, and he commands his disciples to keep this episode quiet until after he's risen, and they do. And again, as it is for Jesus, so it is for us. God doesn't grant our every desire in the here and now. God doesn't try to make our earthly life into this little temple of perfection where we can set all of our worries and cares aside and just bask in the light of God's glory forever. God wants us to do that, but he wants us to do it in heaven. That day is coming, but until we get there, the way is through the cross. So Jesus goes down the mountain. As he goes headed to his crucifixion and death, which he knows is coming, he invites us to pick up our own crosses and follow him, trusting that he knows what he's doing, trusting that he knows where he's going, and trusting that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will ultimately be revealed to us in heaven. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.